This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Lots of chatter of how difficult it is to purchase a home, especially for first-time home buyers, uh, who you know are, in a lot of them, perhaps millennials who are trying to pay student debt as well. Uh, and how do they get their hand up and in, in, into this game? Uh, there's rumors floating around on Monday. Kathleen Wynne will unveil her government's plan to help first-time home buyers. However, she has stressed it will be a small change. What that is, not sure. What are we looking for? Let's bring in Tim Hudak. He is uh, will be the future CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association, I believe, in December. But uh, anytime we can get him on, we're going to yak to him. Hey, Tim, how you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. Uh, before we get into this topic, is it impossible for you to go into any sort of conversation with anybody and them not ask you about politics? <laughs> you know, as long as they keep asking me about politics or things like that, that's a good thing, right? I guess. Sure. What the heck? Because yeah, if I now, but now that I got you on the line, I have to ask you what your thoughts are on the U.S. election and the results. I uh, I thought it was absolutely remarkable. I mean, this is the first time in 200. 200- Forty years that somebody with no prior political office, no role in the military, wasn't a general, or whatever, became president of the United States, the leader of the free world. Like as a fan of politics, I thought it was an incredible story that a total outsider won that race. Did you th- did you ever predict this outcome? Nope. Uh, look, I was actually on CP24 that night. Uh, I was on the public record on the radio show too. Like. I thought Clinton would win. I believed the polls uh, too much. Um, I thought the Republicans would keep the Senate. But clearly, I think two factors. Number one, Trump tapped into a vein of people who were very discontented with the way things were going in the U.S. And he had a, a unique way that I think will become more the pattern of connecting directly with voters through Twitter and Instagram instead of going through the media. And number two... Hillary Clinton was an extraordinarily unpopular candidate among voters who would think about voting for the Democrats. Her vote stayed home big time. What can political parties of all stripes learn from this? Be plain spoken, stay in touch with uh, grassroots, and uh, I think a big lesson of this is the direct communication with voters of things that they care about. Look, Trump was up against, what, 16 other Republican competitors a lot of very experienced governors and senators, and he heard a voice that nobody else was saying or nobody else was hearing in the establishment. That's how he won. Good point. All right, let's talk about uh, housing. Premier Wynn talking about uh, she's going to do something on Monday uh, in regarding to making it easier for first-time home buyers. Any sort of whiff of what, what, what that might be? Yeah, well, we're hoping it's what we've been pushing for from the Ontario Real Estate Association. So as you know, Scott, when you buy a home, you pay something called the land transfer tax. Mm-hmm. It's a tax on the total value of the home. It can be, you know, upwards four to six thousand dollars or higher, depending on the value of the home. So what we've said is, look, there, there's two things here. Number one, it's really hard to get a home these days for first-time home buyers compared to when maybe I was in my 20s or 30s. So let's let's target them and give them relief from this land transfer tax when they buy their first home. That will help them start a family and get on with life and get out of mom and dad's basement. Second thing is, for the long run, we've got to bring more housing supply to market because right now we've got more people chasing fewer houses Hmm. and that's driving prices up. So at the end of the day, by doing something to help first-time buyers by, say, uh, getting rid of the land transfer tax for them, are you worried that that will spawn problems in other directions? In other words, people just passing off who they're getting to buy homes for them? I don't think so. Um, Like, the 
the, the notion that he creates some sort of uh, front person that's a first-time home buyer, I, I doubt it. Like this, this actually was brought in um, by a PC government in the '90s. I was part of. It was expanded then uh, by the Liberal government to um, resale homes, not just new homes. And that's been around for a while. We've never seen any kind of scams around it, uh, Scott, so don't worry about that. But the reality is that the value that you get from this land transfer tax rebate has been stuck in 1990s prices, and the world is tremendously different in 2016. So we'd love to see them adjust that to modern prices and give that young couple that are expecting their first kid Give them a break so they get a place of their own. Any idea how much it would cost government to drop this tax? If they went the full distance for first-time home buyers, we think it's $250 million. Now, that's a substantial impact to the Treasury. I, I've been around the block in government. I get that. But because the market's been hot, the prices are up, there's a lot of transactions, there's a lot of new revenue that's coming in. So why don't we give some of that back to taxpayers? And if we had to pick a sweet spot, you can't make everybody happy. I think most public sympathy, Scott, would be on people that are trying to get their first home. And when you do that, here's the bonus. They're buying the home from me or from you, and that means that you know we'll have some money maybe to upgrade as well, but it has a nice circular effect in the economy. Uh, obviously, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Obviously, interest rates are low. A lot of people are buying more house than they can probably be afford, especially if, if rates try to creep up. Are you worried this just, again, puts more people in, in a precarious situation? Um, you know, a couple things. First, it's always smart to get, get good advice, right, from a professional realtor that's well-trained that can make sure you're not buying too much house, get that service from your financial advisor as well. And there are some recent federal rules that were made, and they'll impart, impact different parts of the country differently, but you still have to now pass a stress test to your first-time home buyer. So they've raised that bar so we don't get in that same kind of mess the Americans got into in 2008. Is there really that much that the government can do at the provincial level on this, Tim? Yeah, I, I really think that the provincial level is the main solution here. You're right, municipalities through zoning bylaws, the federal government around mortgage rules play a role. But I think this is a really good first step, and I hope we hear good news on Monday, because it'll help out that, that you know the young graduate from McMaster that wants to get a place where they got a good job finally. But the big picture here, Scott, is, we need to bring more housing to market, particularly detached, semi-detached homes, townhouses, like you got a bit of space. Mm-hmm. We don't have enough choice in this marketplace, and you're seeing people drive farther and farther away from the cities so they can have a lawn or a garden or a place to kick around a soccer ball with their kid. Only the province, really, in a comprehensive way, can free up more land for homes for middle-class families. Uh, would this apply? Does this apply to the condo market? Yeah, absolutely. It's what works for condos and homes. All right. Uh, so uh, what do you think the chances are of her uh, dropping this tax uh, on Monday? Well, uh, the fact that the Premier's talking about it, and uh, not telling tales out of school, I was in to see the finance minister a couple of days before to make our case. The fact that they are openly talking about it so much, I think, is a very encouraging sign. We'll see if they go the full distance, halfway or whatever. But, Scott, I think any help... There's going to be a, a big deal to first-time home buyers, and I think then spinoffs because you know when you buy a, a, a home, you usually also spend a few bucks on home renovations, yeah. some new furniture. I think it's good for the economy as a whole. 
Uh, all right. Uh, just to end once uh, on the U.S. election and, and not down there, but up here, obviously, as you said, it, there's a segment of the population of disgruntled voters, disenfranchised voters. Uh, do you think that sound, that message is going to resonate north of the border? Yeah, to an extent, right? Like we're, the Canadians are always a little bit kinder, gentler, more respectful, and then we apologize. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of version we are. But if you ask me, like, are, is there a few among Ontarians that the establishments become out of touch, that uh, life's become harder, especially with hydro bills, all that. I, I think so. Um, in fact, there's a recent poll that you might want to cover on your show some, sometime by a, a friend of mine, Greg Lyle, who basically took Trump's message. He took Trump's name out of it, because that can be radioactive in Canada, and he asked Canadians the same questions. And we were like three-quarters of the way the Americans were on issues around uh, jobs, the establishment, and immigration. Interesting. All right, Tim Hudak has been with us, uh, about to be CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association, talking about, of course, uh, a plan on Monday by the Wynn government to hopefully make uh, first-time home buyers give them a little bit of relief. Thank you, Tim, as always. Much appreciated. You bet, sir. You have a good weekend now. You too. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Some new benches have been installed into Gore Park, and... Uh, the, the way the benches are configured, just picture a park bench and then maybe two-thirds of the way down an extra arm so a person in at, at the middle or either end will have an arm as well. Uh, and what this also uh, does is obviously if there's an arm in the center of the couch, it makes it impossible for anyone to lie on the couch. Advocates are wondering whether the benches are defensive architecture. And to talk more about all of this, Greg Tedesco is with us, community developer with Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton and is with us now. Hello, Greg. How are you today? Hi, Scott. Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, what does defensive architecture mean? Yeah, so uh, defensive architecture isn't, uh, it's not a new concept, but uh, just generally speaking, it's uh, kind of a different way how public space uh, can limit who, uh, who can be in public space and can really uh, shape uh, how inclusive or exclusive an environment is, right? So I think one of the big examples that a lot of people might be aware of is uh, in the last few years in Montreal, there were um, a couple places that installed uh, spikes outside of their buildings so people couldn't sleep there, right? And, you know, thankfully we haven't seen that kind of extreme uh, version of defensive architecture here, but uh, defensive architecture can take uh, a bunch of different uh, features. And so, again, looking at this idea of the bench, it can take the form potentially of, and again, intentionally or unintentionally, uh, limiting uh, how somebody uses public space. So limiting, again, how somebody uses the bench like you were talking about. And so now shifts who might hang out somewhere, who might uh, be a part of uh, a public space somewhere or feel welcome in a public space somewhere, right? And thankfully, in the case of when the spikes were installed in Montreal, there was a lot of uh, public outcry after that and, and they were removed. But it's the those obvious examples and the kind of more subtle ones that that we need to look at to look at how uh, how our public spaces are designed to include and and also exclude. Uh, so, do you think it was designed to keep people from lying on the bench? Um, I mean, I think the the conversation needs to be around. Uh, so, you know, I think the overarching question that I saw was: Is it are benches for for sitting and or are they for sleeping? Right. Yeah. I think public space is is should be used by the public and where the issue comes up is when again intentionally or unintentionally um, 
it's that power in designing. Okay, that let's space let's assume space. let's assume, yeah. Greg, that it is intentional. That the yeah. whole idea behind putting that arm there is so people, anybody, doesn't lie yeah. on the bench. Is yeah. that bad? If it's done intentionally so that people can't lie down on the bench, then I think that is a negative thing, and I think it it, it becomes a negative thing because it moves more to. Uh, an enforcement way of dealing with stuff. So if if the response is, you know, we're seeing a lot of people sleeping here, we're seeing a lot of people that are, you know, staying here in a different kind of context, then and we're doing this so people won't do that, then that's that's not a good thing, right? And so when you move from that actual relationship and engagement and actually addressing the issue to, to the enforcement, it almost uh, dehumanizes the issue, right? And at the end of the day, Greg, at, you know, and again, we're playing in a gray area here, Greg, yeah. and, and, and yeah. I don't think you can because it's a lot of assumptions and, yeah. and what have you. And, you know, yeah. I, I can actually see them designing the bench that way for the specific purpose of not having people lying on the bench. Yeah. But again, I don't see the problem with that, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of the people up until very recently have been been complaining that the park has not been inclusive because it hasn't been welcoming in that way. Now we have the park being used more than it's being ever used by the majority of the population. And, you know, whether anybody's lying on the bench or not, I mean, is it any different than lying in a subway car or a, or a, or, or a, a, a bus or a transit bus of some sort? The fact is you're taking up the space that three people would be allowed to sit on. Should we put beds in Gore Park? Uh, I think the response would be, you know, maybe put more benches in. And if people are laying down there, I mean, it's... it's From what I understand, understand, we're going to have Megan Stewart on. There's quite a few other benches around there that are full-length benches that are not like that. So are they not accommodating both here? Um, I mean, when I walk through, I mean, my, again, my, and this is from uh, my own experience of in the past working with individuals experiencing homelessness. And that gives me a bit of a different lens in terms of how I see public space and, and how it's designed. And so... You know, it's it's a we need to look at that as a mix of spaces, right? I mean, I think it, when what struck me was that all of the new benches there, and then I took a walk down around King William and James North and looked at again a lot of those benches now having these bars um, installed on them, right? Or these new style of benches uh, coming into play. And so I think for me, you know, we talk a lot about uh, displacement. Uh, you know, as our city is changing, as as different things are happening, but that doesn't just um, impact individuals who are housed that impacts you know the public spaces where people hang out too right and again intentional or unintentional the result is still there and if people are you know feeling like they can't be uh, a part of a public space or being shown that with what about the person barrier, what about what issue. about the people that can't sit down on a bench because one person is taking up the spot of three or four what about yeah. those people then I would say it, it it goes back to that whole aspect of the relationship about it, right? About that engaging and talking to the person and engaging with somebody, right? I mean, if somebody's sitting on a bench and laying on a bench and I would like some space on the bench, my response, uh, my human response would be to ask them if I can sit on the bench, right? I, and I think it's when we're... I guess we're what we have to determine, of, I guess what we have to determine here is, is the bench designed for sleeping or sitting? Isn't that really what we're talking? I mean... You know, I mean, yeah. we, we, we could have places, and, and again, I don't mean any disrespect mm-hmm. from, from where you're coming from or yeah. the people that you represent by any means yeah. or you advocate for. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, how, how, do we, 
how do we how do we create a park that is welcoming to the majority of the population and mm-hmm. and and I mean you know you have to admit what as Gord Park has transformed into mm-hmm. is is fabulous. Yeah. Uh, again, what we have to ask ourselves, just like with seats on a transit bus, yeah. are they designed for sitting? Are they designed for lying? And if we want to have something like a lounge chair, like you see it a. Uh, you know, in someone's backyard or whatever, then that's a totally different story. Fill the place with lounge chairs uh, yeah. or places where you can sleep. But I think when you've got a park bench, it's there to sit on, is it not? And if and again, if someone's lying on it, it's taking up the space of other people. Yeah, but but again, we're looking at the issue of of this is space for for the public, right? This is the space for for anyone who is there, and for some people, they have other spaces that they can go and feel safe and feel like they can do that. And for other people, they might ha- not have that option, right? And so I think it's it's when we get into that sense of actively uh, limiting public space for, for whatever reason. And again, they, I think it's easier to kind of look at it this way uh, when we're looking at a bar as opposed to, I think we would all agree that, you know, the spikes out front of somewhere so someone doesn't lay down is, is a negative thing. I understand I that, think, but we're not talking yeah. about spikes. We're talking about the benches in Gore yep. Park. And I would say the end result is, is if people are being displaced, if people are, are being told that that's not a space where, where you can be um, in one way, shape, or They're form. They're not then. saying it's not a space you can't be, Greg. There's a, yeah. They're saying it's a space that you can't come and lie down in as if it mm-hmm. was a bed wherever, in a shelter yeah. or, or what have you. And, and I don't mean that just for the yep. people who are homeless. That's any kid that's lying on yeah. the thing. You know what I mean? And so, and so, one of the responses uh, that, that I've, when I was talking to somebody else, said, um, you know, well, you know, maybe if that person isn't supposed to be sleeping there, then maybe they should go to a shelter, or maybe they should go somewhere else. And and my response to that is, you know, there's so many barriers that are being put up uh, that prevent people from entering shelter or entering a drop-in or entering somewhere else, right, in, in different public spaces. And so, that place might be the safest place for that person to be and and if we're taking that away and we're not engaging them as a human as a person who wouldn't it be better wouldn't it be better though wouldn't it be better though to work on that issue than it would be making public parks more comfortable for them so they can sleep in them wouldn't it be better to try to address the problem i mean you know oh yeah i mean i'm not saying it's an exclusive i think it's not an either or it's a both right i mean we need to work on that but i mean in the the broader picture i mean we we do need to address you know the state of affordable housing um income inequality, all these all these things, right? But but public space is a part of that conversation, right? And again, when we're looking at the rejuvenation of the city and the revitalization, but there's also that issue of as the city changes, the, the public space changes and who can be there. And I agree. I mean, Gore Park uh, is, is a great place. I mean, last summer when we had the old style benches in there, it was full and there would be tons of people from different demographics that would be hanging out there, right? And And I think that kind of vision for it where it's a place that anyone and everyone can sit can lay down can hang out can do whatever you can be there but and but that's really based on uh on relational aspect of being there right and i think that's what kind of gore park and these public spaces are it's that place of being with others having that relationship talking to people it's a meeting space right it's not Mm -hmm. a space where you hang out in isolation i think that speaks to the messaging around something like this uh, so should they install some sort of lounge chair? I think we should have lots of different <laughs> options for seating, right? I mean, we look at uh, some of the different benches that we've got across the city. Some are more artistic, some are different. I mean, I think it should be a mix of different seating for um, for people who have different physical abilities, for people who, um, 
might want to sit, may want to relax, may want to lay down in a different way, right? I mean, it's it's no different than if I, you know, am exhausted and I'm walking through Gore Park and I might need to put my feet up, right? And if somebody comes, I'll talk to them and I might move my feet over and that kind of thing. But but again, it's it's developing this as a welcoming place for uh, for a variety of people and not, you know, putting up whether it's physical barriers, different kinds of barriers that whether or not it's intentional, again, it, it's stuff that if somebody looks at that, they'll say, you know, this is a place where I can no longer hang out or I can no longer be, right? And that's, I don't think, the kind of... Uh, meeting place or the kind of city that we really want to be building. Again, I, you know, I don't think it's being exclusive of anybody other than those that want to lie down, whatever, you know. But I, but I understand where you're coming from. Greg Tedesco yeah. has been with us, community developer with the Social Planning and Research Council of, ha- of Hamilton. Greg, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Good talking to you. Thank you. Uh, all right, let's bring in Jen, a uh, caller who wants to have a quick word between guests here before we bring in Megan Stewart, landscape architect for the city of Hamilton. Uh, Jen, what is your thought on all of this? So I've been listening, and I don't find that it's really inclusive. And everyone keeps bringing up the fact that people can't lay down. But what I'm getting at is, well, if there's a bigger person, like an obese person or something, that wants to sit with that barrier, they may not be able to sit in that seat now because you've taken away. No, it's kind of like two thirds of the way down. So it's not, you know what I mean? It's not. Uh, it's it's like That's a big small. two, or yeah, it's a big one or a big two. You know what I mean? Okay. It's sort of two thirds of the way down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so you. what are your thoughts? Are the, should the benches well, be for I sitting? I don't think or? it should. I don't think it should. I don't, under, I, I don't feel that there's a reason why. Like, I don't, you don't I think don't, there should be a, 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 an armrest there? No, not at all. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know of anyone, like, I don't even know why they would think about it. Like, people are complaining that they wanted them. Like, it just makes no sense. Well, my guess is because they didn't want people lying on the bench. Well, yeah, exactly. So, is, exactly. so are the benches designed for sitting on or for lying on? Well, I think it's whatever the person wants to do, really. It's a bench. Uh, what about if you're in a transit bus and someone's lying on a seat? Uh, well, I think it's a little different because it's more, like, inside where the floor park is outside. So, like so you come down. So you come down from your office. You're eating lunch uh, in Gore Park with some friends, and you want to sit on a bench, and someone's lying on one. So what do you do? What if they scare? What if? What if? What if you don't want to? What if you don't want to interfere? What if? What if you're scared to do that? Yeah, that's true. You're What's that? All right, you're you're breaking up, Jen. So I'm going to have to let you go. But thank you very much for the call. Let's bring in uh, Megan Stewart, landscape architect for the city of Hamilton. She is with us now. Hello, Megan. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Good. Did you ever think that an armrest would create such a fuss? Um, I didn't actually. Um. No, not at all. So I understand this was done prior to you coming in. Is that correct? That's correct. Oh. Yes. Um, this uh, this bench was selected through um, almost seven years of public consultation. Mm-hmm. So and, why was? Uh, the, can you tell us why this one was selected with the armrest? Well, uh, there was a pilot that was done, and where a number of different models of benches were actually installed on site. People may remember seeing them, mm-hmm. and uh, through that summer. Um, information was gathered, and the one that you see there today was the one that was selected as the preferred model. So it was picked by the public. You got it. So do you think the public public picked it? That's a tough one. Do you think the public picked it because people can't lie on it? I I can't really speak to that, honestly. Um, I, I think that from our perspective, 
it was selected to be able to maximize seating. Mm-hmm. Um, this bench also provides an armrest, which is um, more comfortable for a lot of people, such as the elderly or physically disabled. It may assist them to get up. It also yeah, that brings um, up a valid point, doesn't it? Yeah, someone who's sitting yeah. on the end will get two hand rests. Yeah, that's a good point. That's right, and and also with having the arm, like there's a lot of benches that have the armrest in the middle of the bench, sort mm-hmm. of at the halfway point. This is at the two thirds point, which. Right. You, I heard you mention it makes for seat, two seats and then one individual seat, which um, sort of helps to maximize how many people will sit on the bench. So what have you got any other feedback from these benches other than that initial uh, trial? Is everybody seem to be happy with them? Uh, so far, um, except for more recently, obviously, what we've heard uh, in the media. So what are your thoughts about what you're hearing, that it's um, uh, defensive architecture? <laughs> Well, I can't really speak to that, honestly. I, I, I can't speak to larger social issues yeah. or anything to that effect. As a landscape architect, our job is to dev- design places that are safe with, via sight lines, um, accessible and aesthetically pleasing. The whole vision for this project was to create an inviting, accessible public destination where people could come to meet. And um, I think that providing seating was a major focus because people want to be there and meet and chat, have lunch, move on or, or stay. And we've provided them the ability to do that. There's a mix of seating options. There's actually three more benches that still have to be installed. Um, they're large curved benches that will be located around the fountain. One of them is just over three meters long. The other one is almost five meters long. And the largest one is 11 meters long. Um, none of which that have the armrests that would prevent anyone from laying down. So there's lots of lots of other alternative seating arrangements there, if you want. There, there will be, yes. They're mm-hmm. not in the park yet, but they will be there in early spring. They're being fabricated by the same people who will be doing the beacons. Um, right. So it, it'll all, all three piece, all, all three benches plus the beacon will be coming in the spring of 2017. So, Megan, you ever thought of maybe putting some lounge chairs out there like it's an all-inclusive, you know? Not at this time. Um, I think between the benches that you see there today, plus the curved benches that I just mentioned, and the open lawn areas, as well as there's raised curbs now, there's a lot of opportunities for different types of use that would appeal to all walks of life. Looks great, Megan. Great. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Megan Stewart has been with us, landscape architect for the city of Hamilton, talking about the benches in uh, Gore Park, which if you've not been down to see, Gore Park looks absolutely fabulous. Thank you, Megan. Appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Of course, this has got some uh, phone line action going. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Uh, Let's start with Jim. Jim, what are your thoughts? Uh, Are the benches for sitting or sleeping? Uh, Scott, I want to thank you very much for shedding light on this situation. Because before you had your previous guest on, my comment was going to be, allow common sense to prevail. (laughs) Um, I understand that, you know, you don't want homeless people laying on the benches, but during the daytime, I can appreciate that. And we have a lot of yellow-jacketed police down there, and they could say, you know, sit up or move along type of thing. But if you're homeless and it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you want to lay down on a bench, so be it, right? But now with your last guest mentioning they're installing quote-unquote bunk bed benches for the homeless of being three and five meters long, um, it offers a, a little bit different insight. And thank you for bringing that to the attention of the public. And it's not just... Yeah, apparently there's all all uh, forms of benching, down, or several different types of benching down there. Yeah, and, you know, if it's 
the armrest is two-thirds down, then you just have to sleep in the fetal position, I guess, Yeah. instead of being stretched out. But if they were all to be like that, I think it would be a little discriminatory because, you know, most people in society... Is are it any different? Like, you know, and, and I respectfully disagree with you, Jim. Is it? Is it? And again, I see your point, 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, but what's eventually going to happen is people are complaining because they come down at lunch hour, and, you know, people wouldn't go into the park. They didn't feel safe there. Now that's changed. Well, that's, uh, that, that, that's a simple fact. So at the end of the day... Um, you know, are, are, are they designed for sleeping or for sitting? Is it any different than someone sleeping in the back of a transit bus? Well, that's the same. My point, beginning with the police there, if someone is sleeping on the bench during the daytime for the cop to say, you know, sit up or yeah. keep moving on. Because as you know, Scott, the majority of society is only one or two paychecks away from being homeless. No, that's true. All right, I got to run along, but thanks, Jim. Much appreciated. Let's bring Paul in. Paul, what are your thoughts? Are the benches for sitting or sleeping? Uh, definitely they're for sitting, Scott. Like uh, your previous caller was talking about common sense. You know, like I, I, I've been a Hamiltonian for 58 years, and I don't know how many times I've gone downtown and seen somebody who is, you know, down on their luck, uh, you know, stretched out having a nap, whether it be on a bench or whether it be on a grate. Um, but, you know, in, in this situation, these things are designed for coming and sitting down and enjoying the park area. You talk about defensive architecture. What was done in Veterans Place when it was opened uh, to prevent skateboarders from getting up on top of uh, the the different uh, oh, good point. area. Yes, you if see? you're a skateboarder, so, that's defensive architecture, I guess, isn't and, it? And definitely, mm. I think that this is something that may have played into the mind of the architecture of these benches. Because mm. um, I, I will sit out in different areas. I drive cab for Blue Line, and I sit out in different areas um, on a daily basis. And, you know, I, I, I enjoy watching skateboarders. Yeah. You know, and, you know, there are different areas that it works for them, you know, and this would just play right into their, uh, right into their game if mm. these, uh, if these uh, uh, benches were left, you know, normal without any kind of barrier slash aid for anyone who is uh, older in uh, getting up or sitting down. And that is a valid point, Paul. I mean, when she said, when uh, Megan was talking about that, that it gives people on either side a chance at an armrest to push up, that is a valid point. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As you and I are just absolutely livid over our electricity bills and the ongoing continuous jacks and rates that, that seem to happen, uh, one happened at the beginning of November, there'll be another one in January, uh, I believe due to cap and trade. Uh, so how about if you didn't have any power to your house or cottage? or anything that you pay for, and you still got charged. Uh, this is the story uh, from CTV News. Ontario Hydro Utility is fighting back against a cottage owner who is suing over delivery charges assessed during the almost eight months his property power line was disconnected. So now they're countersuing him, which I find fascinating. Hydro One has submitted a statement of defense in a Durham Region court in which it defends, uh, in which it defends its practices. Delivery, delivery charges are, quote, based on the amount of electricity used by the consumer and other components that is a fixed charge not dependent on the customer's electricity consumption. 
Uh, but Kip Van Kempen says that's not what his bill says. Quote, it was quite specific that it said delivery charges for the cost of bringing the hydro to your home. And my point is they never brought it to my home. You can't charge people for what is not delivered. Uh, he wants reimbursement of the $1,100 in delivery charges. He says he was assessed between October 2015 and the end of June this year. The power was disconnected after a storm knocked down a tree uh, on the power line uh, next to his cottage, near his cottage, north of Kingston, Ontario. Hydroon was unable to fix the line at the time, and it wasn't fixed until the following June. Uh, that the cottage had power again. The utility says delivery charges are laid out by the Ontario Energy Board and that everyone must pay. Previously, it said a monthly flat rate delivery charge. It assessed the, if the utility company's equipment, including a smart meter, is still on the customer's property and that Van Kempen should have cancelled his service and returned Hydro One's equipment if he wanted to avoid paying the automatic delivery charges. Uh, our energy minister, Glenn Tebow, says, get ready for this. This was the man that says on the removing the HST portion of your hydro bill, the more you, the more, the more you consume, the more you'll save. The higher your bill goes, the more you'll save. Uh, I can understand people's concern when it relates to the delivery charge because there's not a lot of understanding when it comes to that. No, there isn't. And I believe that's done on purpose. It's called passing the buck. Uh, our energy minister continues with, he says, every hydro customer must pay for the wires, towers, and smart meters that make up the system. If it wasn't for the delivery charge, we wouldn't be able to get power to your home. He then conceded that he is considering reworking the definition of delivery charges on your hydro bill. So what? We'll understand it even more? Man, how about just taking responsibility for high prices and gouging us? and not delivering the service, instead of reworking the fine print. Uh, Hydro One is asking the court for Van Kempen to pay its legal bills. Then they've got the nerve to ask this man to pay for their legal bills. Uh, joining us right now, Kip Van Kempen is with his cottage owner, Fighting Hydro One. He is with us now. Hello, Kip. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. I couldn't help but chuckle because you nailed the story right on the, you know, I mean, right a bang on. And I guess uh, to bring you up to speed, I mean, what? Why is this coming up again now? I mean, it came up back over the summer when I chose to sue them because the fascinating part as you get into this is you talk about how a monopolistic uh, provider is sheltered and protected. Hmm. The, the Ombudsman of Ontario, if you go to their website, you'll see the, the Ombudsman of Ontario's powers over any complaints regarding Hydro One were removed. Hmm. So, you know, when you think in the normal pecking order, well, if I can't resolve this, well, thank goodness, instead of uh, courtroom action, there's, a, there's an ombudsman. And the ombudsman can't deal with a complaint uh, regarding Hydro One. That's because so, he probably can't understand the bill any more than you or I can. <laughs> well, he probably can't. And I urge anyone that wants to read more about it, uh, Google Provincial Ombudsman Ontario, his report called In the Dark. Hmm. which is scathing about the culture and everything at Hydro One and the lack of customer service. And I, I, one excerpt that I recall vividly is he says, by any standard, their customer service is abysmal. Yeah, well... But that, that, so, 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 so let's get let's get back to the beginning of this, Kip. How did this all start? So there, you're the, the, you've got a cottage near Kingston. Yes. Uh, uh, storm power gets knocked out. Uh, right. Then what happens? Well, they did. They did. They, they first of all, what infuriated me because you, you, you've got to understand, and and I, I, I 
got to be a little bit technical here, is we now find out that we are covered, every hydro user in the province is covered by an implied contract that is some 140 pages long, even though I'd argue to say none of us have ever seen it, it applies. And in the condition, it's called conditions of service. And under the conditions of service, there's an obligation for hydro when they disconnect, which is what they did in my property. And I'm not arguing that that isn't the right action, but they never bothered notifying me, which is, is required. Well, you know, if your power is cut to your freezer and your power is cut to your refrigerator and you don't hear about it and days go by, and the only way I even learned about it was a neighbor up there called me. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine what what it was like when you opened the door of the fridge and, and right. the freezer when you arrived up there. So then uh, I ended up getting the, uh, uh, the the mast repaired because the only damage was the mast or the stack that comes out, you know, yep. at your roof line there. It was bent and it needed replacing and the meter base needed replacing. But Hydro at this point has cut the wire so there's absolutely no connection with my uh, cottage and my uh, my stack, if you will, right. and meter to to their pole, which is some uh, uh, thirty feet, forty feet away. Mm-hmm. So there's no connection. So I get the thing repaired, and then the fun and games start. And and it's my property is designated as water access. Mm-hmm. Now by water access, that's the preferred method because it's the simplest. It's like a ten minute boat ride, yeah. or uh, on an ATV trail, it's about a twenty minute ATV ride. Yeah. So it's a difficult so, property to get to. Yeah it, it, yeah, it is. And so anyway, the lake doesn't freeze up until January. And so I said the work was all done. The permits were all in place for the inspection. And they said, well, we don't want to go over there unless it's an emergency. Hmm. So I tried to cut them some slack by saying, well, okay, well, we could leave it. And then they pointed out that, well, if you leave it till spring, uh, six months has elapsed, and we needed a, a, another inspection, a more detailed and costly one, from the ESA, the Electrical Services Association. Right. And I said, well, why? Well, if it's disconnected more than six months. And, of course, I argued, well, you're the one causing the, the six-month delay. I, I mean, I'm ready to go. The work's been done. Yeah. So anyway, it went on and on. And then, of course, I just found out this week, these people that were advising me about the access and all this, they're not even Hydro One employees. <laughs> I could, I, it just, I just about fell off my chair. They, they work for a company that has the contract to yeah. run the call center for Hydro One. Hmm. So you could imagine the limited knowledge they actually have, and they're just following the script. So you but couldn't, you couldn't talk to anybody from Hydro One on this, other than these people. I thought you see. I thought all along I was dealing with the with people from Hydro One when right. I was asking all the questions and all and all the phone calls and stuff are recorded. So let's fast forward then to the spring. So then in in there's no point getting my inspection even though I paid for it done in uh, November because the Hydro One done. is telling me it'll be stale dated by the time they come around to hook it up. Yeah. So anyway, I got the inspection done. Hydro was restored on June twenty second. Right. Now, anyone that has a cottage, if you think no power between uh, uh, June th- between October fourth of the year, when they disconnected yeah. the line and June twenty second, you could picture, man, I've only got the use of the cottage for three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, f- with it. So anyway, what what if if it's not bad enough to delay, which you know I guess you can live with the delay and stuff, even though it's you know way yeah. over the top. I called them and said, hey, wait, you guys have made a mistake. You've, you've charged me a delivery charge. Oh, well, you've got to pay the delivery charge. 
And I said, well, I wasn't even connected. Well, no, no, you've got to pay it anyway. And uh, I, I mean, I and really that's thought, ele- and that's eleven hundred dollars over that time period. Well, it's not quite eleven hundred. Right. Uh, I think the m- amount is actually a bit less than that. But now, what we're really fighting about here, uh, Scott, is the principle of the thing. Yeah. How can you charge for what's not delivered? And I've used the analogy before. You call up one of the pizza places and order a pizza to be delivered to your house. And when you're on the phone, the fellow says, "You know, it's going to be five dollars for delivery, Scott, to your house." And you say, "That's fine." There's a, the doorbell rings, and the delivery man's there smiling at you, and he's looking for his $5 plus tip. You settle up with him and say, here you go. And it said, where's my pizza? And the guy says, well, I didn't bring the pizza. I'm only collecting a delivery charge. So when did they say that they could have fixed it? When, uh, so this went, this went out in October. Uh, yes. When were they able to actually come in and fix it? Well, they came in and fixed it and restored it on June 22nd. Right. So what was the reasoning they gave you for not being able to do it from October to June? Well, it was a calamity of errors right. about them, you know, incorrectly. And, and, and what comes out now is they've got an internal note saying uh, that they've provided me with a part of the, you know, of the documents I asked for, uh, suggesting that to care to, to, uh, Travel on this all-terrain vehicle trail, which is less than four kilometers in length, it would take their work crew a day and a half. Wow. (laughs) Now, my wife and I have walked it in less than an hour, and my wife can take her ATV and do it in less than 20 minutes. How did they get get to the line to fix it? Uh, Well, they they came by boat, because when they did it in June, of course, they did it by boat. But they wouldn't travel by boat, they told me originally, between November 15th and May 15th. Okay. So theoretically, it could have been uh, hooked up by May 15th. Why wasn't it hooked up then at the beginning of the season? Well, I did have to get the inspection. Oh, right. Uh, You know, so so by the time, and there was no point having a stale-dated inspection, because that would open up another can of water. Now, are you sure that that's the case, or that was just what the call center was telling you? Well, I don't don't really know. I think the six months without power requiring an inspection, I think that is accurate, but uh, they're now denying about a a different inspection being required, you know what I mean, after Mm. six months compared to the one just for repairing the work. I was told that the initial inspection only pertains to having someone look at the part that was repaired. In other words, someone takes a look, says, yep, there's a new mast in place. Yep, the wires have run down to the meter base. Yep, all's good. Sign off. They were trying to tell me that after six months of disconnection, now the whole property, the whole building, every single thing in the the cottage had to then be inspected, which, of course, I wasn't prepared to go through the added cost of that. So you need a full full electrical inspection as opposed to just uh, something for a repair due to the work. Yes, absolutely. So uh, you have a lawyer for this? No, I don't. Uh, you know, and, and, and because there's not a lot of money at stake, and now it's become totally the principle. So this yeah. week, for example, what came forward was in the process, you have to go to a pretrial settlement conference. And we had that uh, this week on, uh, I guess it was on Wednesday. Right. And And what ended up happening at that point in time was you sit with, I put in quotation marks, a judge, and Hydro's there with the judge, and they've got their legal representative there, plus they've got another legal representative on the phone listening in on this whole thing. Yeah. And in, a, in a, an abbreviated version, you give your 
uh, case to him. And what, what the judge tries to do at this point is act like a mediator and get this thing resolved. Right. But it, what he also does is he makes it quite clear and pulls no punches about telling people the extent of and the strength or weakness of their case. In other words, if you take this to trial, here's what I think is going to happen. So what did he say? Well, I'm not allowed to tell you okay. of what, what he says, but let me say this, is that the argument I put forward was is that you can't charge a delivery charge for something that wasn't delivered. Mm-hmm. And I, I've got right in front of me here now, on Hydro One's website, there's a glossary of terms. So you think glossary, well, this is going to spell it out. And it says, and I'm quoting, line item, uh, line item on your bill, this is delivery, These are the costs associated with electricity from generating stations across across the province to Hydro One and then to your home. Yeah. Full stop. So where is this now? And well, I, I understand they're going to sue you for legal costs in this. Well, they're going to they're going to try. You know what I mean? That's and good uh, PR, isn't it? Pardon me. That's good oh, PR, it, it's isn't unbelievable. it? Unbelievable. So I, I I wouldn't say a threatening tone, but they made it quite clear that they're going to show up if this goes to court with uh, a bank of lawyers, uh, you know, to fight this tooth and nail. Uh, about it, and uh, of course, uh, you can surmise what the uh, judge, given all the facts and given that they drafted this contract that none of us said, and you know, there's there's a legal principle here that anyone that drafts a contract, if there's any ambiguity, which I don't believe there even is any ambiguity, it's found in the favor of of the person that that I uh, found against the drafter of the contract, mm-hmm. because they had the opportunity to make it clearer and everything here. And I think that glossary of terms is pretty clear. It's delivering it to your home. So you could just imagine and, and surmise what the judge told them. So anyway, what I did is said, look, this is more about principle uh, than anything else here. So I made them an offer, and, and my offer was that, number one, they ch- change what they refer to delivery charge and come up with a, a better explanation so that people know exactly what this ad- added charge is. And number two is allow me as a volunteer to give them some input about becoming more customer-oriented as, <laughs> as, as it comes to the customer. And I will drop any monetary thing whatsoever. Now, when you think of Yeah, that, but at the end of the day, who's going to pay the delivery charges? Well, <laughs> listen, I can't take on all the battles. You know, so are you going to have to write the check for 1000 bucks or whatever it is? Well, I, I mean, I've already paid the delivery charge. Oh. You know what I mean? Uh, oh, I guess you'd have to do all that in order to get the, get the electricity <laughs> on, wouldn't you? So, it's like so you want well, it back. So you're, you're suing I, for it back. I wanted my delivery yeah. charge back. Right. But I'm even saying is what's at stake is they, this, this outfit called Hydro One has to become more consumer-oriented and see things from the customer's perspective. Mm. Now, since CTV showed that last night, here's me trying to get some work done today, and I'll, I'll bet I've got 800 to 1,000 emails, uh, and I would suggest three-quarters of them for people I don't even know. Mm. Uh, I've had two lawyers even been in touch with me and said, right on, your legal argument, you're absolutely going to win hands down. Are they offering you advice? Uh, Are they offering you well, their services? Well, I didn't ask. Yeah. I didn't actually ask for that yeah. because I, th- I think there's a perception that I, I that that 
I think is very important. This shouldn't be too sort of... Uh, good point. Uh, yeah, I know what you're going to... Yeah. Three-piece suit guys fighting it out yep, over good legal point. technicalities here. This is, a, this is a Hydra One who I have no option for. You know, and Scott, I think that's important. Your listeners out there, if they don't want to listen to what you say, what do they do? They just dial something else in on their radio. Do you know yep, what I mean? Yeah. But, okay, I, I'm ticked with Hydra One. Tell me who I can go to. Yeah. A lot of people feeling the same way you are, Kip, right now, that's for sure. Well, it's been echoed and stuff, and one of the fellas uh, helped start a petition now for getting after the the Minister of Energy and the the Premier about doing something about this, uh, uh, this whole thing. And it's it's really just an total embarrassment. And you know, so when does this go to court, Kim? I ha- we haven't got a date yet, but it was interesting to show you how out of control this whole thing is. After hearing from uh, uh, from the the judge that presided over this, he set it down for up to two days in court. Oh, man. Now, can, can you just imagine <laughs> the uh, cost? Two days yeah. in court of yeah. and and you know who the end of the day is going to be picking up the tab? Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? yep, yep, uh, you know, yep. you say I'm not going to have to pay their legal bill. Well, in yeah. a roundabout way, we, we all are. Pay. We're all, We're all going to pay this. And you know what's shameful about this, and what I feel is we hear in the news all the time about the word bullying. And normally we think of it being in the workplace yep. or at school. But you know, shamefully, this borders on bullying between a customer and a monopolistic provider. Well you know, said. And, and, and you know, to bully me. We're going to follow. We're going to follow this, Kip. And uh, you go get him. Kip Van Kempen is with his cottage owner fighting Hydro One on charges uh, after, of course, the power was never delivered to his home because the line's down. Thanks, Kip. Good luck. Okay, they can find a whole bunch of stuff on Facebook if anyone's interested in following it. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.